Welcome to Marvel's Voices, where I have the opportunity to find out the story behind the storyteller. So one of the coolest things ever is I'm at this incredible comedy night to see one of my friends, Shashir Zameda, perform. So afterwards, we go over to one of the hotels where she's staying. We have a couple drinks, and I meet this really funny guy, Matteo Lane. And he randomly starts drawing Barbara Streisand with a piece of chalk on this table. And I'm like, yo, who is this dude? Like, we really have to figure out how I get to ask him more questions. Like, how do you go from being a Mexican-Italian guy from Chicago who does storyboarding, oil painting, is an opera singer, and suddenly you're a comedian in New York? So I thought it was a great idea for us to do an interview with him and bring him in for Marvel's Voices, mostly because this dude's impersonation of Storm is incredible. I'm your host, Angelique Rocher, and this is Matteo Lane's Story. Marvel Spider-Man features your favorite web-slinger in a story unlike any before. Now a seasoned superhero, Peter Parker has been busy keeping crime off the streets as Spider-Man. Just as he's ready to focus on his life as Peter, a new villain threatens New York City. Faced with overwhelming odds and higher stakes, Spider-Man must rise up and be greater. Sony Interactive Entertainment, Marvel, and Insomniac Games present Marvel Spider-Man exclusively for PlayStation 4. After eight years behind the mask, Peter Parker is a crime-fighting master. Feel the full power of a more experienced Spider-Man with improvisational combat, dynamic acrobatics, fluid urban transversal, and environmental interactions. A rookie no longer, this is the most masterful Spider-Man you've ever played. Marvel Spider-Man is coming exclusively to the PlayStation 4 on September 7th, 2018. I'm followed by and follow most of the Storm fan pages. <laughs> I love you. Um, yeah, I have a real obsession with Storm. So there is, wait, so you Have we started? Yeah. Okay, great. So you've, you've been drawing your whole life. My like, whole life. I just saw this really amazing flip book you did. When I was 13. It's Maleficent, right? Mm-hmm. You're also obsessed with Maleficent. Yeah. And your artwork of Maleficent is amazing. Thanks. First of all, my mother is an illustrator. And my brother is the top designer at Apple. My sister does interior design. I mean, and, and let me also say this: I was my my parents were not like they weren't like you have to do this, you have to do that. We weren't forced to do anything. I was this neurotic child who would I would go through a ream of paper that's like five hundred sheets. I'd go through it in a week. My mother would scream at me because I would draw, and if I made one mistake, I'd flip it and go to the next page. And so my mom would scream at you have to do the backside, you know, don't waste all this paper and stuff. And uh, then I would do flip books. So all I, 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 and I'm not making a joke. I promise you, I've done over three thousand flip books with those animations. And when I was really little, my brother and I, my cousins who live next door to us, mm-hmm. had a camcorder, and we used it to do stop motion animation and claymation, and mo- like all of my life was drawing. And my obsession with Storm and everything in life stems from my obsession with Sleeping Beauty. My, I'm obsessed with Sleeping Beauty. Mark Davis and Ivan Earl, my favorite artists, who were, Ivan Earl was the concept and sort of overall art director for that movie, and Mark Davis did the design of Maleficent. And he also did a lot of Disney women, Corella DeVille, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, etc. He did a lot of stuff on Bambi, too. Um, but I am obsessed with that movie, obsessed with Maleficent, like an unhealthy obsession. And I find that most of the things in my life, I'm, I have a skyscraper obsession, and that comes from like all these high towers rising in that movie. I uh, Opera 
and the you know Sleeping Beauty was an opera singer, not just a pop singer. Maleficent, which was lightning and storm and powerful women, and I mean, just was like, I mean, I was obsessed. So I feel like a lot of my life obsessions because I have a very obsessive personality, like I hyper focus on things, mm-hmm. um, stems from Sleeping Beauty. So how did we get to Storm? Storm came. I remember my okay. So I grew up in the same block as my first twenty two cousins. And we're Irish, Italian, Mexican. So That's there's, insane. <laughs> there's, a, there's just a, there's a lot happening. My mother raised me to be codependent. Um, <laughs> so I remember I was like seven, and my cousin Michael was talking to us about X Men, and we watched the first episode. And it was Night of the Sentinels, and it was a two part. And so all there was enough cousins for us to all pick an X Men. So I picked Storm because she had lightning powers, made these dramatic speeches. She had a cape. I mean, everyone was like, "Oh yeah, Mateo's just going to be Storm." So I was Storm. My gay cousin Brian was Jubilee, which I, I and my brother who's gay was Jean Grey, and I have an obsession with Jubilee and Jean Grey as well. Um, my sister was Rogue. My cousin Megan was Gambit. My cousin Kelly was Beast. My cousin Michael was Wolverine. And then my cousin Brian and I like would play on our own. We were, we're best friends. We like slept in the same bed every single night. We talk every single day. Best friend. I'm obsessed. We're just like soulmates. And he would play Jubilee, so he would put my mom's like yellow cleaning gloves on, and I would wear this cape, and we'd run around the house, and I would do all the storm things like storm, mistress of the elements. You know, I was just like obsessed. And anytime a thunderstorm would come, I would literally run outside and put my hands up and be like, I summon the full power. I mean, I was just obsessed. And I find as, as an adult, like a lot of gay men were were attached to Storm. I mean, in a lot of ways, she was very drag queen, RuPaul, male, female uh, energy. I mean, she, you know, all this stuff that sort of leads us to like these gay icons. Because in a lot of ways, to me, Maria Callas, the opera singer, and Storm are the same woman. And so is Maleficent. I mean, there's all these like these super powerful, confident women who are just, the gays just lose their minds over. So I, I, truly was obsessed with Storm and my obsession has never left me. I still go and watch X-Men like all of Storm's quotes cuz they're so ridiculous and there's just a non-stop stream of like I mean she okay the most dramatic thing she ever said was she goes um he has not yet felt the power of the elements and then she flies up and they're fighting um uh n- not Neuron Mir- whatever the sentinel from the future's name was who came back and then Storm goes, from the ends of the earth, send limitless cold upon him. I mean, lost my mind. Lost my mind. Yes. So, she, was, she was like a preacher and a prophet. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to look at X-Men the same. Oh, way. I could change it all for you. I mean, I, I was obsessed with that cartoon. One of my favorite artists, Jim Lee, just inspired me so much and so many artists. Um, and they tried to do the Jim Lee's sort of style and, and they used his costumes and stuff. They did better by season three when they did the Dark Phoenix and the Phoenix Saga. I think they got more of a budget. So some of the drawings are like a little better, but that first season was real rough. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I feel like it, I can't tell if it's my nostalgic love for that show, but I do feel as a cartoon show, and also as like someone who's queer, like it spoke to people, people of color, people who are, are, are gay or queer, because there it's like this feeling of I'm something people hate, but I know I'm on the right side, especially with gays. I'm hiding something. I have a secret, but I know other people have this secret and society hates us for it. So in the midst of there being 22 of you <laughs> all in Chicago, but we still all talk every day. I talk to my cousins every single day. We're all in a group thread. We call ourselves the Wolf Pack, and we all talk every single day. I'm not making a joke. I talk to my cousins every 
every single day. I talk to my Aunt Cindy. I call my grandparents at least three times a week. I'm old school Italian. I love this. So tell me about your Mexican family. Well, my grandfather, Joaquin Maldonado, which I'm sure you can say that he's dead. Um, He is Mexican, married my grandmother, who's Italian, Mm -hmm. had five kids with my grandma. So he had five Mexican-Italian kids, my mother being one of them. That's the thing about biracial kids is how they look. My mother looks like a white Italian woman, and my Aunt Cindy looks like a straight-up Mexican Mexico Mexican but um but my family is very funny by the way we all deal with with our pain through humor so me coming out my cousin coming out we all through humor that's how we sort of heal things um so my grandpa um okay he was what I think is like a lower end hit guy for the mafia so like his job was like if you owed money whatever he'd break your legs my mother's growing up with him was he would say he's leaving for cigarettes and come back six weeks later. And so most of my mother's childhood was either raised by her grandparents, super Italian, because my grandma had to get work and try and raise money. Most of, the, most of my mother's childhood was things being confiscated from the home, my grandma screaming, and when he's home, them fighting. And he had another family with another woman with three kids and named them all the same names so he didn't confuse them. How about that? So my mom grew up with all of her Mexican family. And then at the age of 13, when they divorced, my grandma decided that she did not do this the healthy way. She decided that they're no longer in our lives and we're moving on. And she remarried a Sicilian. So my mom no longer talked to her Mexican grandparents, her cousins, her aunts, her uncles after the age of 13, just gone. And, but it's strange now because my grandma doesn't talk about it, but looking at my family, we're Mexican. I mean, you know, obviously we're Italian too, but like, Look at not me, but like my aunts and uncles. Like, look at them. Do you know what I'm saying? My my uncle got his name changed. His name was Joaquin Maldonado Jr. Mm-hmm. Somehow changed it to Jack. I don't want to say the last name now, but but um, anytime I meet someone with the last name Maldonado, like something hits me. I'm like, oh my god. Like, what if we're cousins or something? Because I'm a, you know a quarter Mexican. It's like I wanna. I I have no connection to my Mexican heritage besides the fact that I speak Spanish. But you know what's interesting, though, is like as an adult, like for so long, we're told not to talk about being Mexican for just in front of my grandma. My mother was always open and honest about it. And so was my aunt Cindy. But um, I went on a Mexican talk show called Noches con Platinito. And it was so cool. I got to go on a Mexican TV show and talk about being Mexican. And it was very cool because it's like, well, you know, now I'm an adult and I want to sort of trace back and find now, I'm interested. I know my family in Italy. I know how to speak Italian. I have all that connection to my Italian heritage. I want to I find out about my Mexican side. Well, it's real. Like, my family is actually part Mexican as well. My great-grandmother came from Mexico City to New Orleans, but that side of the family, it wasn't a family separation, but it was, they were like, okay, so now we're white. And I'm like, okay, cool. Interesting. Well, is your family indigenous Mexican? Like, are you, or were they Spanish? Indigenous. Same. Yeah. We did the 23andMe, and I'm like 13% Native American. San Jose and Mexico City, that's where my family's from. Oh, yes. What if we're like long-distance relatives? Wouldn't that be great? I'm kind of here for this. My, here's the thing. My mother's one of seven, and mm. we grew up around her family. Mm. So my whole life was consumed by this I- Italian identity. Mm. My dad is Irish-American, but like fifth generation. Like They have no connection. Their family's like really quiet. They don't talk. They're like aliens to me mm-hmm. like they make no sense his whole family I think I saw his parents five times my whole life where I saw my grandparents five times a week growing up 
my mom's side. So I just have this weird, distant connection with my dad's family. I have like they're literally like aliens. Like I don't know how to be around them. I'm uncomfortable. My mom's family is like we're obsessed with each other. We're loud. We're like my big fat Greek wedding. I love it. Well, and it, it's this idea, and I kind of, I kind of hear it in in your comedy, and I hear it in like how you bring people together. This idea of representation, right? Mm-hmm. That's the family that you were around. That's mm-hmm. what you saw yourself in. That's who looked like you and talked like you and and was around you. And it's it even comes out in your artwork because you don't just do storm. Like you've actually done gender nonconforming artwork. You now have a comic book. Oh, yeah. My comic book with Bob the Drag Queen, who's my best friend. Um, Bob writes the stories. I do the drawings. And then we sit and laugh together. But he's so busy and I'm so busy. It's hard to keep going. So we're going to now try and take it out and make it a TV show. I love it. It is shocking to me how still separate the LGBT world is from the straight world. Like, Bob the Drag Queen is world famous. 900,000 Instagram followers. Travels the world. Famous. Straight people. Whoop. But, you know, if, like, someone from some NFL team was sitting here, I would literally be like, he's hot. I would have no idea who he is. It's like a whole world that doesn't exist to me. But Drag Race is my NFL. Um, so you were yes. almost going to do a show on that, right? Like, you were going to break it down and actually... I wanted to do a joke about it. Like, yeah. I think that there's funny something really funny. Like, they both wear padding. They wear makeup under the eyes. Um, the fans are just as great because it's crazy to me that straight men like one from Indiana one from Wisconsin or wherever like you know Oklahoma one could be black one could be white doesn't matter they're straight they get together they're in the airport they can you see the Bulls game they're friends immediately they can talk about it so now with Drag Race it's so crazy because I was in Austin and there was clearly a queen working behind the desk and she recognized me and I was like hey girl and he's like hey and we I sat there for 10 minutes talking about RuPaul's Drag Race like we were going over it like it was a sports game. And I was like, oh, I get it. I get it. It's a thing. Let's go. I want really want to talk about this opera singing thing. Sure. Opera singing. Yes. Italy. Oil yes. painting. Yes. All these things. Yes. How do we get from the Art Institute in Chicago? School of the Art Institute of Chicago. I studied painting and drawing mm-hmm. and fashion illustration. And they they have no grades. It actually was the best thing that ever happened to me because, I mean, I came out, thank God. I mean, I was already working at Michael's Arts and Crafts, so it was obvious. But um, school was always awful. I always got terrible grades. I mean, school was just prison. I hated school. I hated everything about it. I've never liked it. I ne- school was a nightmare for me. The School Yard Institute was heaven. It was the first time I went to school, and I was good at what I was doing. It, it just... It was so formative and so wonderful. It's the one because I normally say don't go to college; it's a waste of time. I do not support education, but um, I—that's <laughs> a joke. But um, for me, really, school, <laughs> the Art Institute of Chicago was was the greatest thing that happened to me. I think with me, and I think this happens to a lot of kids. It just manifests in different ways. When you are, you know, I was struggling with my sexuality, and I was clearly struggling with school. And, I, and, and not school just in, like, a curricular way. I was struggling because I was different and knew I was different. And people made it very – like, I just wasn't liked. I mean, I was made fun of a lot. Um, you you find other things to hyper-focus on. It's like a safe place. And I had the ability to draw and sing, but we'll get into singing in a minute. Um, so I just sort of used that as my outlet. The problem is, is I – I overcompensate. It's like a lot of ways we're like, you know, oh, this guy goes to the gym and he's trying to overcompensate for something. I was doing all these things to overcompensate for the fact that I just wasn't able to get along normally with other kids. But yeah, with drawing, I used it as my sort of way to like escape. I don't think I would have said that then, 
I mean, I just like drawing. It was something I could do. It was my identity. But I think as an adult, I look back and think, oh, I was probably hyper-focusing on this skill that I had because it was it was my only identity. I mean, I wasn't able to be proud of being gay. I mean, everyone sort of had an identity they could hold on to, and I didn't really have that. So I used drawing as my identity. And I've always been known as the good drawer since I was a kid, kindergarten. I was drawing Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and Little Mermaid for girls. I mean, yeah, that's I don't I'll never understand that. My whole life, girls have always wanted me to draw them pretty women. From literally every age, girls loved it. Well, and I mean, it's interesting because, again, as I said earlier, like you're a big feminist. You hang around like the strongest black women comedians. Like It's so funny you say that out loud because I don't, I never like thought about, it's not like I planned to go find a bunch of black women and be like, let's do this. But that's but, how I met you. I met you yeah, um, with Sashir in New Orleans with Shashir. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, she loves you to a, death. To me, there, I have such a special place in my heart for Sashir. I mean, I don't know if I've quite verbalized that to her. I could cry thinking about it. I truly, I, I, that woman means so much to me. I don't think she realizes. I don't think she realizes how much she means to me. I will love her forever. We, we moved in with each other. We didn't know each other. And she's very guarded when you meet her at first. You know what I mean? Not in a bad way, but she's smart. She's not yeah. going to just let you know who she is. And we became so close. I would wake up because I lived in this. We lived in this apartment in Brooklyn. I had like this. I lived like a Keebler elf. I was my ceiling was so low. I never was able to stand up fully in my room, (laughs) but it was 800 bucks a month. So I took it. But I I would come down my little staircase and every morning I'd just crawl into Sashir's bed and I would sleep with her and then we'd figure out food. And then I knew she loved my pasta. So when if she was gone or she was at shows or whatever, I would make enough pasta and then leave her some extra pasta. And yeah, we still, I mean, I, I really, I really can't say enough about her. I truly love her. I think she's brilliant. She's amazing. Um, I think I, I actually gushed the first time I met her. I was like, thank you for everything you're doing on SNL. Like, thank you for being that person. It is not easy. I grew up watching SNL and not seeing myself. And now you're there. And it's amazing. And God bless you for actually being awkward and nerdy and doing all these things. Because it's not easy, right? Right. Like, being awkward and nerdy and a person of color is just, it's, there's not well, she's space. She's sort of two different people because she has this nerd side to her, which I love, right? Mm-hmm. But she's she's one of the strongest women I know. She's, I love her so much. I've learned so much from her to just don't put up with things that's going to make you compromise your self-worth. But that would be my biggest lessons I've learned from her. And Nicole, who I met through Sashir, mm-hmm. now Nicole is one of my best friends. I mean, Nicole Byer is also, hands down, one of the most naturally funny people I've ever met. And uh, that's another person where it's like, I can't say enough about how much I love that person. I mean, I laughed with her sometimes where Sashir and I are like, we're, we can't breathe, we're crying. And Nicole, I mean, Nicole is, she's got such a energy about her. I mean, now I'm just sucking up about my best friends. It's fine, but no. She's, but so, yeah, I just, Nicole and Sashir, I just. Well, and you're also very supportive of them, right? There's this love when it comes to this idea of representation, right? Because you also talk about this uh, in your stand-up. It's like they're not enough famous gay. There's none. Name one. Mario Cantone does not get the credit he deserves. I th- I love Mario Cantone. And uh, a lot of out gay women, you know, from Wanda Sykes to Ellen DeGeneres. Ellen DeGeneres, who's the, the pioneer of all pioneers. Um you know, Margaret Cho, Cameron Esposito. And I mean, there's just 
there's so many women, Judy Gold, uh, Jessica Kirsten, uh, but it, gay men, it just, there's no, there's gay men who are doing comedy and it, either they weren't able to be out or they didn't get the, the credit they deserved and, you know, it just, it's. But how does, how does that impact you? Like having. It's exciting. I, I get to make up my own rules. I mean, and, and there's a group of us. There's me, there's Joel Kim Booster, there's James Adomian, there's Solomon Giorgio, there's John Early, there's Julio Torres, um, there's uh, Frank Liotti, Tim Dillon. Um, and what's wonderful about, you know, being gay and doing comedy and doing it within this sort of, I hate to say, like the straight world, but, you know, like the standard comedy circuit is um, really there are no rules. I mean, what are you going to say? You can't talk about being gay too much as hack? How do you know? No one else has talked about it. So I'll talk about it. So it's interesting because there is this kind of balance as a minority. You 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 hyper focus on yourself as minorities tend to do, and say, okay, am I talking too much about this or not enough about this and this much and blah blah blah? And I don't want to alienate or I don't want to. But then after a while, you do it and you're like, I'm just going to talk about what I want to talk about. So to me, it's ex- I think it's really exciting, and I love seeing like gay men, queer men, doing it. It's so cool. I love all those comics. They and so different. Tim Dillon is so different than Joel Kim Booster. Both wonderful, you know. And it's great because it starts making straight people see that queer people are not all the same. That we are all different. We're all so different. I think for a long time, the only identity people who not queer identified gay people or queer people as some type of sexual act, you know. And they didn't see us as equal in any any way because it was whatever deviant sexual behavior so it's nice to see audiences opening up as well and being more inviting like I get on stage now at the cellar and I say hi thanks so much I'm obviously gay and the audience laughs because it's like okay they're all thinking it and I'm owning it now we can move on and they're 99% of the time I find them interested and engaged and I know that I stick out not because I'm trying to or I'm making it an act or I'm like trying to embellish on my homosexuality but truly I really just don't think that people some people don't know gay people so to them it's interesting so I like going on stage and owning that I have gay voice and not in a shameful way I own it and say it and I don't mind how I sound I like how I sound well and I think that that gets back to this understanding of who's in the room which I think is the really cool aspect of you doing your still drawing Mm -hmm. like your work. I mean, yes, there's some like some absolutely gorgeous recreations of other people's stuff, but you've really taken a lot of Liberty. Like that new Hulk is dope. So normally I do my own whatever drawings, but sometimes a great skill I learned from my teacher, Marion Krishka in art school was when you're trying to come up with something Sitting and going over your head sometimes clouds the thought. It's like artistic block. And he would always say, draw from your favorite artists. Go look at your favorite artists and draw from them. Do recreation paintings. And my favorite painters are Joaquin Soroya and Robert Henry. And, I mean, I know Singer Sargent is like, he's so good, but, like, you know, he's great. Um, So I would do a lot of Soroya paintings. I liked his colors, his brushstrokes. And you start to pull from these artists and learn from them. And really, that's what young artists do. I mean, when I was a kid, I looked at Mark Davis's drawing of Maleficent. I would look at Jim Lee's drawings. I would copy X-Men. I would copy Sailor Moon because you're trying to absorb and learn. You're trying to see why does that line make this look that and why does that line look this. When I was working as a storyboard artist, I'd have a lot of downtime. So I would literally Google artist version of the Hulk 
and I would go through a million of them and I would find one that I like and think, I, I don't know what this artist is doing, but I want to learn from this. So I'm going to draw from this. So I drew someone else's drawing of the Hulk. And now I'm so mad at myself because I want to post it and put the artists up there and say, I drew this person's drawing of the Hulk and I learned XYZ from it. And I can't, I'm struggling to find it on Google. But I do that a lot. I always follow Jim Lee. I always, because when you're drawing on your own, you know, obviously you have your own style, but it's a great way to stay in practice. Well, I also think it, it goes back to saying it's the same thing as having those heroes. Like, I know right. you've mentioned Joan Rivers is one. Number of, one. Number one. Funny The reason than why any comedian. you're a comedian, right? Yeah. Well, my first CD was Ellen, shockingly. My mom got me an Ellen CD, and I've memorized that CD to this day. I, Ellen's early stand-up is, to me, some of the funniest stand-up. In the, first of all, she's a woman in the 80s balancing being a woman in the comedy circuit at a time where I'm sure it was horrific. On top of the fact she's a lesbian and has to hide that and still able to get on stage and do a full hour of material and not feeling that bad for herself, not victimizing herself, and not talking about her sexuality. She's a goddamn genius. So I, I would listen to Ellen's stand-up. And, uh, but I wasn't a comedy nerd. Because I didn't feel those people spoke my language. A lot of the guys I'm with loved comedy as a kid, but it makes sense. It's written for them, it's in their voice, and it's talking directly to them. I didn't understand the genius of Bill Hicks and George Carlin, etc. Because they weren't really speaking my language. Now, as a comedian, I watch and I appreciate. When I saw Kathy Griffin, she opened a door for me. Because it was the first time I was like 17 or 18, someone was speaking to me. This is my language. This is my world. This is my language. I get it. And that's why Kathy Griffin has so many gay fans, because she's one of the few who are speaking to us, who gets us, gets our sensibilities, gets our interests, gets our lifestyle, never shames us, never puts us down. Never. So obviously we weren't welcome in the world of comedy. Being gay, we were the butt of the joke until like 99, 2003. But Joan, I remember I was in class. I was in a storyboarding class, and we had to do this giant storyboarding project. So I would watch all these Kathy Griffin videos as I was drawing. It was like early podcasting, just listening to something on Bravo. It was on iTunes, but it was her Bravo set. And I thought, well, I know a lot of people compare Kathy to Joan. Let's see what Joan has to offer. When I'm telling you, pencil down, hands like in my lap, jaw dropped, Joan Rivers changed the game. That was who I was like, I want to I be a comedian. Because Joan was, she was using it as a weapon, she was taking her comedy and using it, like wielding it as a sword. She was so strong. I'd never seen someone so strong before. I was laughing so hard. Joan Rivers changed my life. I, I remember the moment where I was when I said, I'm going to be a comedian. And it took me a couple of years to figure out what that meant. I finally, I mean, I've only been doing comedy for six years now. And I, there's still so much Joan in me when I'm on stage and in life. Because it's just, she was just, there was this strength. And I would compare her to the greatest comedians of all time and say she's better. To any comedian, I would compare her. A lot of people aren't familiar with her comedy. But again, she was speaking my language. She, it's the same thing as Kathy Griffin, where she, was, she wasn't speaking down to me. She was speaking to me. She was an underdog, right? She's a woman. She's 81. She's been beaten down. She's been blacklisted. She's been made fun of. She's been the joke, the butt of everyone's joke. I know what you're talking about. Girl, I am on the same page. So when I heard Joan Rivers, it was it, I felt like I was watching myself. And mm. it was so cool to watch someone furious and just going after everybody. And I it, it felt it was so empowering. So, you know, to me, Joan Rivers changed 
the game. Well, there's this power in seeing yourself, right? There's this power in being able to go either that's who I am, you're talking to me, you're relating to things in the way I relate to them, or that's who I want to be, right? So, like, I have this this image of you right now with, like, being a superhero with Storm's power and Joan Rivers' snark and, like, <laughs> Kathy Griffin's hair just, like, <laughs> flying in the wind. That sounds like a dream. You're welcome. That would be fabulous. Yeah, I don't know. I, I've, I just have always been more interested in really strong women and i think it's a very common for gay men too i mean gay men sort of that's one of the problems with gay men is there's a lot of healing for us to do in our community and now it's better than ever but for a long time we have had a difficult time honoring ourselves being Mm. represented outside of drag or seeing as a sex object you know that's why i think a lot of times gay men there's still we we grew up with so much self-hate i'm generalizing Mm -hmm. we grew up with so much hate and internal hate for ourselves that you know we have a difficult time supporting ourselves you know like i was at an oscar party two years ago and when sam smith won over lady gaga you would have thought like a baby was just murdered on stage i mean the room was screaming a hatred and i thought and i was like and I know Lady Gaga has done so much for our community. I love her. But also, like, guys, like, this is this is what we have to look at. Like, Sam Smith isn't the enemy. I know he said stupid stuff about not knowing, like, who has won an Oscar before. And it was an AIDS victim who died who had won an Oscar. But also, that's another problem the gay community is we're not taught our history in school. There's no book. We're not, no one's opening it up. No one's saying what the Stonewall riots are. No one's talking about gay history. There's still this giant shame over being gay. And it's up to ourselves and to teach each other our own history. So that's why things like Drag Race is important or Paris is burning or Stonewall or these are things that we need to be telling each other about and passing on the history because no one else is doing it for us. Yeah. We have to seek our own history. So as you're looking at this and you're looking at your future projects and mm-hmm. like you're looking at what does, I mean, what does the future hold for Mateo Lane? Hopefully marrying my boyfriend. Who is from Spain. Who's from Spain. I'm obsessed with him. Um, Who you met on the grams. Oh, I, I liked his pictures. He liked my FaceTime boyfriends. Yeah, you know, I Bob the Drag Queen and I would like to make kick-ass drag queen happen about a black queer person who in drag as playing the role of a superhero i i don't believe that's been done before um and i would like i have a cartoon that i want to pitch called princess cupcake about a fat 13 year old girl who saves the world it's sort of my version of sailor moon and uh, she has all her like princess warriors with her as well um and then i have another comic book i'm writing now with uh, evan williams and, you know, comedy, I have a Netflix special coming out. I want to do more comedy. You know what I want? I just want to have enough of a life that I can travel with my boyfriend. That's it. All right. So the last thing we're going to do, you can do impersonations. I, I knew like, you were going to say that thing. for some just, reason. Because you've been doing it. You literally have been doing it the entire interview. Probably. Look, I have seen you on stage doing Liza and Patty and Mariah to your heart's content. And a great barber from Shark Tank. Oh. I do. So we're going to do a little Robbie, bit of... Robbie, how'd you come up with that idea? Uh-huh. <laughs> Interesting. Fascinating. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to do a little twist on it today. Okay. We're going to do all Marvel impersonations. Oh, I don't even know. Like, I can do a few from the cartoon. I think you might be able to pull some of these out. I don't do a great Professor X, but the cartoon series, I, I swear him and Jean Grey had catchphrases. Jean Grey's was just her trying to use her powers, fainting and going, Scott! And then um, 
Professor X was just like, my mind! Uh, Anytime he he used Cerebro, which seemingly didn't help him at all. I mean, it was supposed to be the machine that, like, magnified his powers. And then he would use it, like, it's too much! Like, would just, you know, he was so annoying. And Cyclops was a big boob. Gene! (laughs) I mean, the Phoenix Saga was just her going, Scott, Gene! Scott, Gene! Scott. That was the whole Phoenix Saga. All right. Storm. I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I was. I'm thinking my favorite storm quote. Well, Night of the Sentinels when she she's like, she's like, Mistress of the Elements commands you to release that child. No, my favorite thing that she ever said in um, the Savage Land Part One. It's so dramatic. Her and Rogue are riding horses, which Rogue is like, Yeehaw! I'm like, Rogue, you fly. This horse should not be impressing you that much. But they're riding horses, and Storm is such a Debbie Downer. Rogue is like, Storm, you gotta let loose every once in a while. And Storm goes, I admire your spirit, Rogue. But unlike you, I must keep my emotions in check, lest my powers rage out of control. Which is a foreshadowing for that episode, but also, that you know what's so funny? Is one time I was, when I was in Chicago, there was this huge crack of thunder, and my cousin texted me a second later and said, Lest my powers rage out of control. I mean, that... <laughs> I love my cousin. <laughs> yeah, so that's one of my storm quotes. She's just so... Debbie Downer, dramatic. It's like, Storm, we're riding horses in Central Park. Let's just chill out. And Rogue, shut up. I think that's a wrap. Was that good? Was that interesting enough? You were hilarious. I can't. I just never shut up. I just, uh... Yeah. I never really thought that I would ever meet someone who loved Storm as much as I did. But that definitely just happened. A special thanks to Mateo Lane for just being himself and such an amazing guest. If you love this interview, make sure you check out Mateo's upcoming tour dates at MateoLaneComedy.com and his podcast, Inside the Closet. It's pretty hilarious. We'll see you next time.